Hi, and welcome to the second full episode of Safer Democracy. No cold open this time, because I have some housekeeping to take care of with you. The first is a trigger warning. The casualty count of the last episode, the coup, was relatively low. About 100 men from Castillo Armas' invasion force, a few dozen in violence in the countryside, 15 Guatemalan soldiers doing the coup itself, Castillo Armas, Arbenz, and Ambassador Pirafoy. This time around, things are much worse, and they're much worse from the very beginning. Moreover, this isn't something that happened a hundred or a thousand years ago, where we can put a little distance between ourselves and it. This is stuff that happened 60, 50, as little as 10 years ago, and many of the people who were lucky enough to live through what came to be known as La Violencia are still alive now. I'm going to be talking about the physical realities and the political implications of all the types of violence outlined in the report of the Guatemalan Commission for Historical Clarification. Beatings, assassinations, disappearances, torture, and massacres. And I'm going to be quoting eyewitness accounts. I'll try to warn you when those situations are coming up, but be warned now because they're all over this podcast. The second thing is that the narrative this time around is going to be a little less neat. The coup was more or less straightforward, and the U.S.'s involvement and culpability were easy to point to. The aftermath of that coup is still going on, and this episode is going to cover it pretty intensely up to 1986 or so, and maybe a little more lightly to the present day. Sixty years of history is a messy subject, and defies easy storytelling, and the U.S.'s involvement, except for the coup that started it all, was more abstract. But by the end of this, you and I should have a more panoramic picture of what went on in Guatemala. The third thing, and something that I mentioned in the introductory episode, is that I'm a freelance journalist currently living in Mexico, and while it's true that I want people to listen to this podcast because I believe the things I'm talking about are important and interesting, having a successful project like this makes me an easier hire and makes it easier for me to pitch articles. So if you like what you hear and you have a friend that you think might like it, pass it along. And if you can take a second, hop over to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to podcasts and give us a quick ranking. It helps me out, and it's the best thing you can do to make sure that this podcast keeps getting made. The fourth and almost the last thing that I have to say is I'm recording up in the hills of the Sierra Gorda in Querétaro State in Mexico in the house of my good friend and current Peace Corps volunteer James Dykstra. I came up here because it's a little quieter than the place that I was living, but given that this episode is going to be in large part about campesinos, there's going to be a bit of noise from campesinos on it. That's all I've got, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. 
We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So, for anybody who didn't hear the last episode, or anybody who needs a refresher, Carlos Castillo Armas, with the help of the United States, instigated a coup d'etat in Guatemala and brought down the country's second democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz, in June of 1954, ending the period known as the Ten Years of Spring. And like any time with a name that optimistic, the years that came afterwards were a hard left turn. Castillo Armas spent his first year reversing everything Guatemala had achieved since 1944. He abolished the agrarian reform, outlawed unions, opposition parties, and rural organizations. He returned the franchise to the tiny white class of large landholders known as finqueros. He set about imprisoning, murdering, or exiling anyone who held power or position thanks to democracy. And he rewrote the constitution to make his changes permanent. Three years into his rule, a palace guard stopped Armas on his way to dinner and shot him dead. Whether that was the choice of just that guard or an expression of other elements in the government or the military or countrywide feeling is up for debate. After his death, there was an interim period of jostling among the military elite and a rigged election, at the end of which General José Miguel Idigoras Fuentes, the guy who had lost the 1950 election to Arbenz, and who had declined to participate in the CIA coup because their terms were too exploitative, ended up on top. That happened in 1958, and from then till 1960, suffice to say, the autocratic military regime in Guatemala consolidated its position. I didn't find a great source for it, and I don't want to rehash Wikipedia for you. In any case, the next part of our story starts in 1960, when a group of junior army officers and cadets from the military academy, upset with his increasingly dictatorial leadership, mounted a rebellion. They took over barracks and territories in the capital, Guatemala City, in the city and state of Zacapa in the east, near the border with Honduras. They also took control of Puerto Barrios on the east coast, Guatemala's only major saltwater shipping port. Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer, the two guys who wrote The Story of the Coup, a book that was the backbone of the last episode, estimate that as much as half of the Guatemalan army might have been sympathetic to or actually participated in the revolt. Unfortunately for the would-be rebels, the United States was at that time heavily involved in Guatemala's military situation, since the CIA was using the country as a base of operations for its upcoming Bay of Pigs invasion against the Castro regime in Cuba. The CIA sent bombers piloted by Cuban exiles to attack the rebel positions, and Eisenhower sent five Navy vessels, including an aircraft carrier, to patrol the Atlantic coast. A more aggressive attack was unnecessary. The Guatemalan army, always in tune with the desires of its American patrons, saw what was in the wind, and the rebellion died out on its own. Two of its leaders, though, Marco Aurelio Jan Sosa and Luis Augusto Turcios Lima, escaped to El Salvador with an eye to carrying on the fight. Both men were young, and both had been trained by the U.S. Jan Sosa had been drilled in the Panama Canal Zone, while Turcios Lima had been through ranger training at Fort Benning in Georgia. Whatever the original intent of that revolt, which Kinzer and Schlesinger think was probably more about swapping the military man in power out for another than fundamentally changing the nature of the state, Jan Sosa and Turcios Lima came back into the country in February 1962, now intent on a more complete revolution. They formed the Movimiento Revolucionario 13 de Noviembre, the November 13th Revolutionary Movement, named for the date of the first revolt. MR-13 was the first group to become part of the FAR, the Fuerzas Armadas Rebeldes, the Rebel Armed Forces. Parentheses here, the FAR starts off as the Rebel Armed Forces and later becomes the Revolutionary Armed Forces, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to use one name, Revolutionary. One of the unfortunate things about telling any given Latin American history, at least in the 20th century, is that there are going to be a lot of acronyms for a lot of different groups. 
I'll try to remind you each time one or another comes up, but here at the beginning I'm going to run through the opposition forces so you have an idea of what they are and what they're about. In the early 1960s, there are two important actors to worry about in the opposition, and those are the PGT and the FAR. The FAR we just mentioned, and the PGT was the Partido Guatemalteco de Trabajadores, the Guatemalan Workers' Party. The PGT was communist, and it had been one of the pillars of the state during the 10 years of spring. While the interests of the right, that is the United States, the United Fruit Company, and the large finquero planters regularly attacked the state through coups and rebellions and violence, the communists worked through the democratic process and supported the land reforms under the last legitimate president, Jacobo Arbenz. After the coup that unseated him, the PGT was violently repressed. Its members were beaten or killed or unlawfully detained, and the organization went underground. The PGT was classically Marxist, which meant it was interested in organizing workers, not peasants, so its activities throughout the whole period we're going to look at were concentrated in the cities and in other places with industrial workforces, like mines and some plantations. More than rebellion, the PGT was interested in political vanguardism, that is, organizing workers into unions, staging strikes and protests, and educating, running secret schools and printing underground newspapers. It was at sometimes a binding force, holding liaisons with all the different parts of the opposition. The FAR, on the other hand, was about outright rebellion. Like the PGT, the organization was classically Marxist, more interested in workers than peasants. Quoting from the Guatemalan Truth Commission report, and side note, I know it's called the Commission for Historical Clarification, but in English it usually gets listed as the Truth Commission, and I find that easier to say, so I'm going to stick with Truth Commission, and the acronym for that is CEH. Anyway, quote, Armed struggle was meant to be managed through guerrilla warfare, through the placement of small guerrilla units in different regions of the country. They hoped that this would motivate the population to join the revolutionary struggle, weaken the army, and bring down the government. The FAR's social base of support in the eastern part of the country was composed of small-scale tomato producers and tobacco workers, workers at the United Fruit Company, and the International Railways of Central America, owned by United Fruit, as well as Steve Doris from Puerto Varios. Unquote. The FAR also had smaller followings in the central and south of the country, among small landholders who had supported the agrarian reform, among union workers, and among students and professionals in the, in the capital and center of the country. I should mention, too, that I'm relying on the English synopsis of the Commission Report, since the original Spanish version is 12 volumes long and not available either on the internet or in any library I can get to. The synopsis runs to 300 pages, and I could get it on Amazon, so it's what we've got. I'll mention, too, that the FAR was made up of or contained a number of different organizations, like MR13, which I mentioned earlier, or the Edgar Ibarra Revolutionary Front. I bring those up not to confuse anybody, but just to let you know, if you're well-versed in this history, that I know they exist. For everyone else's benefit, I'm not going to bring up any of those other acronyms. If any group that was part of the FAR did something or had something done to it, I'm just going to say the FAR, the Revolutionary or Rebel Armed Forces. This is Latin America, and this is a podcast, so we're making compromises. In any case, from 1962, when Jan Sosa and Turcios Lima strolled across the Mexican border, and for the next two years or so, the FAR and the rest of the rebellious opposition set to organizing and educating. You can't run a mass guerrilla movement without guerrillas, and guerrillas have to be taught and trained. So much that's good, alongside so much bad. Nothing perhaps new in that, but striking nonetheless as we look back over 1962. More than anything, it's been the year of the astronauts, with Colonel Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth. While the nascent guerrilla movement was finding its feet, Guatemala held an election. 
Especially in this early period, but throughout the time we're going over, elections were funny things in Guatemala. The military was running the country, but since Guatemala fell into the U.S. aegis in the Cold War chess game, they had to keep holding elections for the appearances of democracy. And for the voting in 1962, the military had a problem. Juan José Arevalo, the mild-mannered university professor who'd been the first elected president of Guatemala during the ten years of spring, came back from exile in Mexico to run a campaign. Because his successor, Jacobo Arbenz, had become the focus for discontent, Arevalo's popularity was still intact, and the continuing anti-democratic nature of the Dígueras Fuentes regime made him only more beloved in Guatemala. So the military, afraid that under his continued leadership another left-of-centered politician would become president, staged a coup and put the Minister of Defense, Enrique Peralta Azurdia, in the presidential palace. Now, I couldn't find any excellent or comprehensive source on how that coup worked or if it was made to look anything like an election, but by the end, Peralta Azurdia was in office as the head of the Institutional Democratic Party, the party of the military, and he would stay there for a full term, as if he had been elected, until the next campaign season was over in 1966. Starting in 1964, Two years after the coup against Idigras Fuentes, the FAR, the Revolutionary Armed Forces, launched a guerrilla war in Guatemala with the aim of overthrowing the government. The FAR operated mostly in the east, in the states of Izabal and Zacapa. They were far away from the capital, but they sat along the railway to the important Puerto Varios, and they held the Sierra de las Minas and the Sierra del Santa Cruz, mountain ranges that the rebels could use for protection and as bases of operation. What does guerrilla war mean in Guatemala in the early 1960s? Well. The FAR's objectives were to weaken the state and to encourage the people to rise up against it. According to the Truth Commission report, that meant taking over and occupying city centers, gathering communities and holding classes on communism, democracy, and the revolutionary struggle, and making attacks on the army and the national police and agents of the state that the FAR felt were involved in the repression of the people. In the cities, the FAR formed an urban front whose job was organizing logistics for the small cells of guerrillas in the countryside. They did so by raiding banks, foreign businesses, and army buildings for cash and supplies. The army and the Guatemalan state had been in the continual business of repression since Arbenz's ouster in 1954, but after the start of guerrilla war, the state became a kind of massive machine designed for internal repression and terror, with the business of actual government as a kind of afterthought. From the Truth Commission report, quote, in the first stage of the armed confrontation, the state tried to destroy political organizations such as the PGT and the FAR. However, as the conflict continued and grew more intense, the state not only pursued these groups, but also targeted virtually every organized group, even those that had no defined political position, because from the state's perspective, they represented a threat to the established order." Now, despite what had been going on in the country since 1954, the Guatemalan army in the 1960s was still organized to confront an external enemy, as armies usually are. To pivot to an internal threat, and especially to an insurgent one, requires organization and a change of tactics, something you folks might remember that the U.S. Army went through after the invasion of Iraq and earlier during the same time period we're talking about during its involvement in Vietnam. The plans for that reorganization and for the prosecution of the war were contained in Guatemala's National Security Doctrine, which laid out the army's goal. The complete elimination of communism in Guatemala, the extermination of the guerrillas, and the dissolution of all related organizations, which in the army's paranoia came to include virtually all non-state organizations in the country. Again from the Truth Commission report, quote, The army began in the 1960s to engage in a forceful process of anti-communist ideological indoctrination. The nationalistic right-wing training began with the officers and expanded to the lower ranks and through the military to all sectors of society. 
The initial ideological focus was provided by the School of the Americas, run by the Americans in the Panama Canal Zone, followed by training in the United States, unquote. Guerrilla wars are almost never about militarily defeating the current regime. They're about convincing the populace. But whereas the rebels were teaching workers to oppose people that impressed them, the military was teaching that anyone who expressed any opposition to the state, in any form, was an internal enemy. And the bar for that latter category is much lower. From the commission report, quote, Based on this idea, the army acted with extreme severity. Civilians were understood to be either with them or against them. There was no neutral place, unquote. By the end of this episode, it'll feel like I'm harping on this topic, but the distinction is important. Going just by ideology, a legitimate target for violence by the rebels is only someone who actively raises a hand against the people. For the army, legitimate targets for violence were anybody judged at any time to have expressed or intimated or thought about opposition to the state, which is to say just about everyone. Establishing that kind of radical agenda among the top brass is relatively easy, but less so in the ranks, especially when by demographic necessity enlisted men and much of the junior officer corps at the time were drawn from poor Mayas and Ladinas, themselves subject to the depredations of the state. That problem, too, was part of the national security doctrine. The army held recruitment drives, snapping up all willing young men and virtually kidnapping others, forcing them into service. Their training was brutal and physically abusive, designed, according to the commission report, to slowly degrade their values so that later the soldier would be willing to act in ways completely contrary to the basic norms of respect. Soldiers were forced to kill animals and to brutalize their countrymen, and, after training, to subject new recruits to what they had been through. The idea was first to break down whatever set of morals the men had had before, and second, to build up complicity. During training and throughout military service, it was made clear to men throughout the ranks that any disobedience would either result in physical violence or summary execution. The military was structured relentlessly vertically, almost like a line of men from the Joint Chiefs down to a private soldier, each man higher up on the chain holding a gun to the head of the next man down. I'm not saying this to absolve anyone of anything, but to show you how you can mobilize a large number of men to commit violence against their friends and neighbors in a short time. But speaking about culpability, the commission report makes it clear a large number of times that the military was also diligent about reporting. Every officer, from second lieutenants on up, submitted regular reports on everything they did, extra-legal violence included. Army High Command was aware of and responsible for everything we'll hear about later in this episode. One last note here about organization. Just like the rebels, the force of the Guatemalan state was divided into dozens of different entities. The National Police, the National Ambulatory Police, the Home Guard, the Caiviles, the Telephone Exchange, the Intelligence Agencies, on and on. But beginning in the 1960s and accelerating afterward, all of those disparate entities came to be more and more just other branches of the military. And unless the distinction is important in the moment, I'll be referring to all of them as the military or the army, since they all fell under the Joint Chiefs of Staff. After a brief period of civilian rule, Guatemala has returned to the pattern of her past. Military rule. The army is largely made up of illiterate Indians from the interior, who are perfectly willing to use their weapons on people they don't know. Every major building in Guatemala City is guarded. Anyone entering the National Palace is carefully checked by Secret Service men in plain clothes. The armed guards are all over town. The people, unless prodded, have learned to ignore the army and stay clear of unnecessary trouble. So from 1964 through the early days of 1966, the rebels and the military pursued their objectives, the one side training and organizing and the other side trying to root them out. In 1965, the U.S. increased its assistance to the Guatemalan military, with both the CIA and the Green Berets sending down advisors to train the army in counterinsurgency. 
1965, the army launched Operación Limpieza, or Operation Cleanup, in the cities, primarily the capital, to do urban counterinsurgency against the PJT, the Guatemalan Communist Party, and against the urban fronts of the FAR, the rebel armed forces. Police and army officers in plainclothes began abducting suspected members of the PGT and of other labor groups, torturing them for information on their comrades, and then killing or disappearing them. On the 3rd of March, 1965, the government kidnapped and disappeared 28 important members of the PGT leadership, a group that became known as the 28. In the wake of their abduction, killings and kidnappings of other union members skyrocketed across the country, probably in a daisy chain of torture-extracted betrayals among PGT membership. The 28 served as a focal point for the opposition, too. Just like the 43 that disappeared from Ayutzinapa in Mexico, the 28 made the extra-legal activities of the government obvious and provoked much protest in the streets and in the press. Because of the military's with-us-or-against-us attitude towards the citizenry, though, that protest resulted in increased attacks on the universities and the press in the cities. While all that was going on in 1966, Guatemala was holding another election. Julio César Méndez Montenegro was a lawyer at the time and the brother of the man who founded the Partido Revolucionario, the Revolutionary Party. But when his brother was assassinated before the election, Méndez Montenegro presented himself as a candidate. The Revolutionary Party was the great hope of the opposition forces in the country, and Méndez Montenegro ran on a platform of restoring civilian government and continuing the revolutionary project begun under Arbenz, that is, democracy and liberal reform. The PGT and the FAR had great hopes for the Revolutionary Party and for Mendez Montenegro, according to the commission report, and they called a unilateral ceasefire to allow the political process in 1966 to go forward. The forces of the state and of the right, however, were not so happy about things. In the first place, the army continued its anti-insurgency activities, finding and killing members of the opposition wherever it could. And in the second, the forces of the establishment gave birth to what's become a time-honored tradition in Central America the Death Squad. Way back in 1954, when Castillo Armas was invading Guatemala with the help of the CIA, both he and his CIA handlers thought that he needed a party to represent as the liberator, and together they created the MLN. The MLN, the Movimiento de Liberación Nacional, or National Liberation Movement, served as his party during his presidency, and afterwards, when the Institutional Democratic Party became the party of the military, as a kind of catch-all for radical anti-communists, the more violent-minded of the planner aristocracy and the fringe right. The MLN wasn't running a candidate in the 66 election, but it was vehemently opposed to the Revolutionary Party. In that interest, it created a paramilitary arm called the Movimiento de Acción Nacional Organizada, the Movement for National Organized Action, or MANO, which in Spanish means hand. The MLN was pseudo-fascist, and the MANO was created to be something like the brown shirts in Germany. Their emblem was a white hand over a red circle, and beneath it the words, This is the hand that will eradicate the nation's renegades and traitors to the homeland. While it was ostensibly under the control of the MLN, the mano, or the white hand, was quickly co-opted by the military. Its membership was largely current or ex-military or policemen, and its activities were coordinated by the high command. The commission report notes that many other groups with other names were formed during the 1960s, but that the differences between them, both in membership and leadership, were ephemeral. And quote, The CEH determined that the majority of the death squads were neither autonomous organizations nor independent from the army, but rather were clandestine elements of the intelligence system. This was a method of psychological warfare whose goal was to spread terror among the population. In this way, these groups hid the participation of soldiers so the human rights violations would not be attributed to the government or the state agents. 
end quote. The White Hand campaigned hard against the Revolutionary Party, breaking up its rallies, kidnapping or killing its members, making death threats, publishing lists of those to be murdered, and trying to disrupt the voting on Election Day. But either in spite of, or maybe because of the obviousness of the violence, the Revolutionary Party and Mendez Montenegro won the election in a landslide, and the candidate took office in July 1966. The local communists are known to be receiving their support from Castro. Against them stands positive programs and strong armed tactics. The question some reporters raise about Guatemala is whether the tactics promote communism as much as the positive program pushes it back. Now, it might seem strange that the military was so afraid of a liberal president in 1962 that they staged a coup, and that later they allowed a candidate running with the Revolutionary Party to be elected in 1966. But in the intervening four years, the reorganization of the military and policing institutions of the state under the National Security Doctrine had put all the forces of power firmly in the hands of the high command. They did not necessarily need the president to keep running the country. Juan José Arevalo and Jacobo Arbenz were able to carry out reforms during the 10 years of spring because they had the support of the officer corps. Arbenz held on as long as he did against Castillo Armas and the CIA because he made sure to promote men who he'd known and who were committed to democracy. Throughout the last presidential term, the military had done the opposite, and to the great disappointment of the PGT, the FAR, and all the forces of the opposition, the repression under Mendez Montenegro didn't lighten up, but actually intensified, now that the military had a figurehead from a different party to sit in the presidential chair. The United States also took Mendez Montenegro's election as a cue to step up its counterinsurgency assistance to the Guatemalan government sending down Colonel John Weber Jr. as chief of its military mission and loaning, according to a 1966 Washington Post article, more than 1,000 Green Berets, fresh from their experiences helping the government of South Vietnam, to train and assist the Guatemalan army with counterinsurgency. As 1966 rolled from the election towards the end of the year, Guatemala became an early and maybe the very first model for counterinsurgency in Latin America. Army patrols swept through the countryside, detaining anyone suspicious, while in the cities the line between the plainclothes policemen and members of death squads that carried out kidnappings and executions became blurred or non-existent, while the U.S. provided moral and military support for all of their joint operations. George Washington University runs the National Security Archive, which contains briefing books full of declassified documents. One of those briefing books is called, quote, The Guatemalan Military, What the U.S. Files Reveal, unquote. One of the documents from that briefing book is a secret cable that the U.S. Deputy Chief of Mission sent from the embassy to the State Department in Washington in December 1966. The cable reports that the Guatemalan Vice Defense Minister made a request for, quote, U.S. assistance in covert training of special kidnapping squads, unquote. Although the request was denied, the response was that the United States, quote, fully supports current police improvement programs and the initiation of military psychological warfare training, and additional counterinsurgency operations training, unquote. Which is to say that the U.S. was very aware, on the one hand, of the kinds of death squads and activities that the Guatemalan military was using, and on the other hand, very interested in providing continuing support despite those activities. In the same period, again in part because of the repression of the government, and definitely because the government had neglected any kind of development or improvement of the lives of its large rural population in favor of repression, the FAR and the PGT had been making strides and held strong positions in the states of Izabal and Zacapa in the east and in Chimicula on the border with Honduras. The same Washington Post article that reported the presence of a thousand Green Berets in the country said that the rebel forces estimated their own numbers in the east between fighters and sympathetic civilians at around 20,000. 
Whatever the strength of that number is an actual factual statistic, the article is clear that at that point, the FAR was optimistic about its progress and its situation. To deal with that optimism, the army put one Colonel Carlos Arana Osorio in charge of Operation Guatemala, a massive sweep of the three rebel-infested states in the east by the army, the National Police, the American Special Forces, and what the army estimated to be more than 2,000 members of paramilitary death squads. Operation Guatemala got rolling in October 1966, and in November the government declared a state of siege, dropping all pretense of a constitutional regime, suspending freedoms of expression, protest, the press, and all legal protections like due process and habeas corpus. The army swept through the countryside, abducting or summarily executing anyone thought to be in connection with the rebels and torturing those they brought back to base. Death squads and the police did the same in the cities to members of the PGT, the FARS Urban Fronts, members of the Revolutionary Party, and students, journalists, and members of unions. Amnesty International's 1976 report tallied the death toll of Operation Guatemala and the state of siege at 8,000 civilians. But since Amnesty has high standards for reporting and little information was able to escape the region from 66 to 68, it's possible that the real number might be as high as 16,000. Colonel Arana Osorio, the man in charge of Operation Guatemala, became known as the Butcher of Zacapa. And by December 1967, virtually all FAR activity in the east had been wiped out. FAR and PGT cells existed in a much diminished capacity in the cities and had to curtail virtually all of their activities to avoid being wiped out. Even though the insurgency was by 1968 almost dead, state violence went on. Especially in Guatemala City, which by that point hosted over 20 different death squads, including two run directly by the National Police, suspicion and terror kept all opposition subdued. In December 1967, a former Miss Guatemala who had sympathies with the PGT, Rogelia Cruz Martinez, was found raped, mutilated, and dead on the outskirts of the city. Her death, in a country that valued its pageant winners as national treasures, went as a sign that absolutely no one was safe. In January 1968, in retaliation for the beauty queen's death, a remaining urban unit of the FAR shot up a car full of U.S. military advisors, killing John Weber, the chief of the U.S. military mission, and the naval attaché. In August of that year, the FAR attempted to kidnap and then killed the U.S. ambassador, John Gordon Maine. Although almost all rebel activity had ceased, those two attacks gave the Guatemalan military ample cause to continue the violence, and reinforced U.S. impressions that counterinsurgency support was the right avenue to pursue. The violence of the army slowly tailed off during 1970. 1968, a year of change, a year of protest. Protest through vocal but orderly demonstration, and protest through murderous lunacy. Now, with the first round of violence tailing off, I'd like to get on to my next topic, which is a lot more hopeful. But before that, I've got to take an aside here and talk about methods of repression. Not to serve your or my morbid curiosity, but because I think the ways that a state oppresses its people are important in themselves, and because the Truth Commission thought the same thing. The trigger warning I mentioned in the opening of this episode applies for the next few minutes. The Truth Commission report defines several different methods of state oppression that were extant in the 1960s, and they were extrajudicial killings and abductions, terror, torture, forced disappearances, and rape. For much of this section, I'm going to be pulling very long quotes from the Commission report itself, because the commissioners and the witnesses they interviewed in the 1990s know more and better about what went on and its consequences than I ever could after any amount of study. First on the list were extrajudicial killings when some state agent decided that a given person was guilty enough and executed him or her. 
The commission report determined that the army committed 86% of executions, meaning that they were for the most part taking place in the countryside, where bodies by the side of the road would be less of a problem than in the city, where international press might see them. Likewise, the report clarifies that although sometimes the killings were ordered from on high and other times were committed according to established guidelines, that, quote, the decisions to execute certain nationally known or internationally known people were made at the highest levels, unquote. The commission reported that during regular army operations, uniformed soldiers would do the killings, and that during covert operations, soldiers would dress up as civilians or as guerrillas to do them, creating or trying to create the impression of parity with the rebels. From the commission report now, quote, Throughout the internal armed confrontation, the army carried out thousands of arbitrary executions, many of which were committed against people accused of having ties to the guerrillas. In many cases, victims were executed by the army without any prior verification as to whether the accusation of being a member of the guerrilla or a collaborator was true. Many times people were accused of collaborating or being guerrillas as a result of personal conflicts with members of their community or residents of other aldeas. When faced with accusations of this type, the army did not corroborate the truth of these charges and would summarily execute those accused. Now from the testimony of a soldier included in the CEH, quote, We went out on patrol again, really, destroying the little houses. And every once in a while, we would find one or two guys out there. The officer would order us to kill them and leave them there, and we'd move on. I said, My lieutenant, here is part of what we've found, a woman. She was around 19 years old and had a baby around 8 months old. Bring her over, he said. Truthfully now, what are you doing here, he said. Really, you're a gorilla. She said, truthfully no, and he said, good, kill her. Son of a bitch, I said. Really? And the child too? They killed her, they shot off three bullets, and then they killed the child. End quote. Next, terror. The CEH groups terror under killings, but keeps it distinct because of the way that killings were committed and then how bodies were disposed of afterwards. The report notes that, quote, in the nation's interior, communities were left in a state of uncertainty, vulnerability, and disorder through the systemic elimination of traditional leaders, unquote. The idea being that more than just executing suspected rebels or collaborators, the army tried to destabilize the communities on which the guerrillas depended. After committing the executions, the security forces would heighten the terror by, quote, leaving bodies exposed on posts, displaying the severed heads of victims on poles or hanging from trees, cutting off their tongues or their hands, mutilating their breasts or genitals. These were practices that became common and were committed either before or after a victim's death, unquote. The commission of terror also served to reinforce the dehumanization that the army attempted to instill in its soldiers to make them ever more willing collaborators in counterinsurgency activities. Quoting now from an ex-soldier interviewed as a witness for the commission, quote, that night we found four women and the officer said that we would sleep with them on a hill. After making use of them, the officer gave the order to make some stakes and plant them there. They were placed there and their bodies were left lined up on the mountain." End quote. The guerrilla and any hope for revolution depended on creating a community among Guatemalan workers and peasants strong enough to throw off the military government. The government, by contrast, could maintain itself through force, so it endeavored with all its forms of violence to break down the humanity necessary for community both among the populace and among its own soldiers. An officer's revolt also relies on mutual trust and hope for something better, but when every member of the military became complicit in the most horrifying violence, all of that broke down. Now we have forced disappearances, which are a more particularly Latin American kind of violence. What they are at base are kidnappings, often mass kidnappings, with no ransom note, no announcement, no sign of victims ever again. From the commission report, quote, the ultimate goal of forced disappearance was the destruction of something, 
an organization, the development of an idea, through someone, the victim. As a strategy of the counterinsurgency war, it represented one of the main mechanisms of getting rid of the leaders of social organizations. This goal, which defines the essence of forced disappearance, defines it as different from arbitrary execution. While the former has an immediate effect on society and the victim's organization, in forced disappearance the impact continues over time. Concealing the victim's whereabouts and physical condition, whether or not he was still alive, whether or not he was being cruelly tortured, and whether or not he was passing on information about his organization or community, created an atmosphere of uncertainty that remained among those that had not been captured and were part of the daily lives of the victims. Their family, their political party, their union, social, or cultural organization, as well as the residents of their community. The impact of forced disappearance was the persistence of doubt, fear, and insecurity resulting from the uncertainty generated by concealing the fate of the disappeared detainee. The group to which the victim belonged then became vulnerable and acted to protect itself. It stopped its activities, its members went into hiding, its family sought refuge, and the community fled or was dispersed. End quote. The Commission report documents a huge number of cases of torture, but clarifies even its high number by saying that because torture was used in many or most cases of abductions and disappearances, and in many cases of extrajudicial killings, all of those numbers could be added to its tally. The report notes that, quote, torture was applied in various stages. Following detention, there was personality softening, followed by interrogation, where different techniques were used. In the end, victims were generally executed or turned into army collaborators, unquote. The softening period sounds something like what you hear about the CIA and former black site prisons nowadays. Long periods in hoods, denial of sleep, denial of food or forced feeding, denial of a sense of time, psychological humiliation, physical weakening, all in the service of the eventual interrogation where things got worse. Another long, awful passage from the commission report, quote, The most common methods of physical torture were systematic beatings, cuts and wounds, sleep deprivation, and denial of food, forcing people to watch the torture and killing of others, burns, suspension and hanging, asphyxiation or immersion, as well as sexual torture, torture with electricity, torture with pharmaceuticals, and dental torture. From a witness testimony, They took me away. They removed my shirt and took off my pants, and they grabbed one of the officer's sweaters and put one of the sleeves of the sweater in my mouth and tied me with it. Here, you'll tell us the truth. Then I saw that they grabbed a cable and put it in a socket. Then they began to give me electric shocks. I didn't know what electric shocks were, but I felt everything. It's not like being beaten. I thought that I was dying little by little. They took him to the military base. Once he was there, they began to beat him and interrogate him about his compañeros, continually hitting him in the head, and he lost consciousness various times. They threatened him with a knife, saying that they would slit his throat. When he didn't respond, they put a rope around his neck and hung him, and when he was about to die, they let him down, giving him time to recover. One of the soldiers offered him money if he would tell them who the other guerrillas were. He responded saying how could he tell them if he didn't know. They put a plastic bag over his head and tied it to the neck until he asphyxiated. They continually changed the two soldiers that tortured him, and each one used his own means of torture. They began beating Jesus in the mouth until his teeth broke and then they pulled out a knife and made him swallow them, one by one, while they were interrogating him about the names of the guerrillas. Finally, the officer, who was angry because he hadn't told them anything, grabbed his tongue and told him that he would cut it out as he repeated his order to tell them the names. End quote. Later, we have rape. Quote, Rape was committed in a systematic and widespread manner by state agents within the framework of the counterinsurgency strategy. Rape became a weapon of terror, the fact that state agents were the perpetrators of these violations, mainly army soldiers, 
created mistrust on the part of indigenous women towards the institutions identified with the state, which existed apart from their culture and community, end quote. The commission report notes that in at least 25% of rape cases, the victims were then executed by the military, and that most women who were detained by the military were also raped. From a witness testimony, quote, The soldiers would say, we're getting fresh meat. All the women were raped day after day. The truth is that every woman who was captured, no matter the age, was raped. At all times of the day, soldiers lined up to abuse them. Later, they executed them, and those responsible laughed about the way they died, end quote. The commission report also found that 9 out of 10 women subjected to rape by the forces of the state belonged to one or another indigenous Maya ethnic group. Christ, alright, so I get through all that. That I think it's important isn't reason enough, and that it was important for a truth commission doesn't necessarily make it important for a podcast. But in the first place, I need to make clear the division of violence during this period in Guatemala, between the violence of the state and the violence of the guerrilla. I think the division is crucial in the context of a podcast about American foreign policy because in the U.S., guerrilla and insurgent are almost always dirty words. They come up in Vietnam and in Iraq and Afghanistan. When the U.S. is behind a group, usually they're labeled freedom fighters, whereas guerrillas are the bad guys. And did the guerrilla commit violence in Guatemala? Absolutely. Did they sometimes engage in violence against civilians who were suspected of being collaborators rather than only against the military and the police? Yes. But arbitrary killings and other forms of violence directed against the civilian population were never the strategy of any guerrilla group. And the commission report notes that when one or another, because there were only a minuscule few, did get out of hand, they were tried by guerrilla courts and held accountable. The military, in contrast, made all the most horrible forms of violence we just went through the heart of their counterinsurgency strategy throughout the 1960s, some of the 1970s, and the 1980s. Again, the guerrillas didn't want to destroy every aspect of the state. They wanted the populace to rise up and take over, and for that they needed a united populace behind them. The military needed only force to continue in power, and their goal was to destroy any and all communities which would oppose that force, especially indigenous Maya communities, which the white Ladino military state regarded as fundamentally other and dangerous. The second reason we had to get into all of that in the context of a podcast about U.S. foreign policy is that it very much looks like the U.S. was aware of what was going on from the very beginning and saw the massive terror of the counterinsurgency as no kind of obstacle for continuing support of the Guatemalan regime. Beatriz Mans is a Chilean anthropologist, now at Berkeley, who did extensive work in Maya communities in Guatemala in the 1970s and 1980s, and she wrote a book called Paradise and Ashes, which was another major source for this podcast. From that book, quote, Anti-communism served to justify and conceal the most heinous of crimes, and the United States eagerly funneled millions of dollars to military regimes decade after decade, showing no concern for the brutality committed by the armed forces, end quote. She notes that Guatemalan officers received extensive counterinsurgency training in the Panama Canal Zone and at Fort Benning, and that U.S. Army and CIA advisors were often with Guatemalan soldiers as they conducted counterinsurgency operations. The U.S. military, the CIA, and the State Department were intimately involved with the Guatemalan state at all levels, and trying to imagine that they weren't aware of what was going on or that some of them weren't literally in the room when some of the violence I described was taking place is ludicrous. But not everyone from the U.S. who was in Guatemala at the time was all right with it either. Byron Vackey was the U.S. Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy in Guatemala, and after he got back to Washington in 1968, he sent a memo to the Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, who runs all of Latin America for state, which is in the National Security Archive briefing book. It's a long memo, a very long memo, but I'm going to quote the whole thing, because I think it shows that we knew what was going on, 
and that some of us knew it was wrong, that they spoke out and that absolutely nothing changed. Very long quote now. Quote, The Guatemalan government's use of counterterror to combat insurgency is a serious problem in three ways. A. The tactics are having a terribly corrosive effect on Guatemalan society and the nation's political development. B. They represent a serious problem for the U.S. in terms of our image in Latin America and the credibility of what we say we stand for. C. The problem has a corrosive effect on our own judgments and conceptual values. The counterterror is indiscriminate, and we cannot rationalize that fact away. Looking back on its full sweep, one can cite instances in which leftist but anti-communist labor leaders were kidnapped and beaten by the army units. The paramilitary groups armed by this COPPA commander have operated in parts of the Northeast in warlord fashion and destroyed local PR organizations. People are killed or disappeared on the basis of simple accusations. It is argued that the excesses of the earlier period have been corrected and now only collaborators are being killed. But I question the wisdom or validity of the Guatemalan army's criteria as to who is a collaborator or how carefully they checked. Moreover, the derivative violence of right-wing vigilantes and sheer criminality made possible by the atmosphere must also be laid at the door of the conceptual tactic of counter-terror. The point is that the society is being rent apart and polarized. Emotions, desire for revenge, and personal bitterness are being sucked in, and the pure communist issue is thus blurred. And issues of poverty and social injustice are being converted into virulent questions of outraged emotions and tyranny. The whole cumulative impact is most unhealthy. It is not true, in my judgment, that Guatemalans are apathetic or are not upset about the problem. Guatemalans very typically mask their feelings with outward passivity, but that does not mean that they do not feel things. Guatemalans have told me that they are worried, that the situation is serious and nastier than it's ever been before, and I submit that we really do not know what the campesinos truly feel. Counterterror is brutal. The official squads are guilty of atrocities. Interrogations are brutal. Torture is used and bodies are mutilated. Many believe that the very brutal way the ex-beauty queen was killed, obviously tortured and mutilated, provoked the far to Myrtle Curtle Weber in retaliation. If true, how tragic that the tactics of, of our side would in any way be responsible for that event. But the point is that this is a serious practical political problem as well as a moral one. Because of the evidence of this brutality, the government is, in the eyes of many Guatemalans, a cruel government, and therefore righteous outrage, emotion, and viciousness have been sucked into the whole political situation. One can easily see there how counterterror has blurred the question of communist insurgency and is converting it into an issue of morality and justice. How fortunate for us that there is no charismatic leader around yet to spark an explosion. Counterterror has retarded modernization and institution building. The tactics have just deepened and continued the proclivity of Guatemalans to operate outside the law. It says in effect to people that the law, the constitution, the institutions mean nothing. The fastest gun counts. The whole system has been degraded as a way to mobilize society and handle problems. Our objectives of helping Guatemala modernize are thus being undermined. The effect of the money we put into civic action and the pilot program in the Northeast is, in my personal opinion, more than offset by the effect of the counter-terror. The value to the nation's political development of Mendez completing his term is probably already gone. We are associated with this tactic in the minds of many people, and whether it is right or wrong so to associate us is rapidly becoming irrelevant. And politics, just as important as the way things are, is the way people think things are. In the minds of many in Latin America, and, tragically, especially in the sensitive, articulate youth, we are believed to have condoned these tactics, if not actually to have encouraged them. Therefore, our image is being tarnished, and the credibility of our claims to want a better and more just world are increasingly placed in doubt. This leads to an aspect I personally find the most disturbing of all, that we have not been honest with ourselves. We have condoned counter-terror. We may even, in effect, have encouraged or blessed it. We have been so obsessed with the fear of insurgency that we have rationalized away our qualms and uneasiness. 
This is not only because we have concluded we cannot do anything about it, for we never really tried. Rather, we suspected that maybe it is a good tactic, and that as long as communists are being killed, it is all right. Murder, torture, and mutilation are all right if our side is doing it and the victims are communists. After all, hasn't man been savage from the beginning of time? So let us not be too queasy about terror. I have literally heard these arguments from our people. Have our values been so twisted by our adversary concept of politics in the hemisphere? Is it conceivable that we are so obsessed with insurgency that we are prepared to rationalize murder as an acceptable counterinsurgency weapon? Is it possible that a nation which so reveres the principle of due process of law has so easily acquiesced in this sort of terror tactic? I cannot, from my own personal experience in Guatemala and what I have seen since, honestly say to myself the Guatemalan military have any reason to believe that we are really opposed to this tactic. I honestly think that on the contrary, they believe we have accepted and encouraged it, even though we have pro forma remonstrated against excesses. We have talked to them to be sure, but not very insistently, and the image the Guatemalan military man gets from his total contact with the U.S. and U.S. advisors at all levels is very much a mixed bag. It betrays, I am afraid, intentionally or unintentionally, acquiescence and condonement. Counterterror is, in short, very wrong, morally, ethically, politically, from the standpoint of Guatemala's own interest and practically from our own foreign policy point of view. What to do? I am frankly not sanguine that we could stop counterterror. But one thing we can do is be honest with ourselves and admit to ourselves that there is a problem and that counterterror is wrong as a counterinsurgency tactic. I just do not think we have done that. Beyond that, there are three things to do. A. The record must be made clearer that the United States government opposes the concept and questions the wisdom of counterterror. B. The record must be made clearer that we have made this known unambiguously to the Guatemalans. Otherwise, we will stand before history unable to answer the accusations that we encourage the Guatemalan army to do these things. C. Most importantly, we should put our thinking caps on and devise policies, aid, and suggestions that can make counterinsurgency unnecessary. It is argued that if we can remonstrate strongly to the Guatemalans, they will say we encourage them to go ahead, and now what do we suggest? It is a good question, and we should ask ourselves that. If counterterror is justified by Guatemalans in terms of the weakness of the legal system, is there nothing we can do to help and prod them on legal reforms? Is there nothing we can do to make them stop the brutality of torture and mutilation? Is there nothing we can do to help them develop philosophical concepts of institutions in a legal system? I know that primitive violence has gone on a long time in Guatemala and elsewhere. Do we just throw up our hands and accept all of its wrongness as long as it is also effective? And will history's verdict say it was effective in Guatemala? If, in fact, the GOG pleads weakness in the conventional security apparatus, is that not precisely what our assistance and counsel is for, to help them perfect conventional legal law enforcement? If the U.S. cannot come up with any better suggestion on how to fight insurgency in Guatemala than to condone counterterror, we are in a bad way indeed. But most of all, even if we cannot dissuade them, we owe it to ourselves to come to terms with our values and judgments and take a clear ethical stand. Unquote. After that memo, the briefing book notes that in a news interview 30 years later, Vaki said he doubted that anyone in the State Department had ever read his memo. So I wanted that memo in this podcast for a number of reasons. The first and most germane to what we've been talking about in the course of this podcast is what Vaki says about the contrast between our professed values and the ways in which we acted on the ground. The image problem, that people perceive what we're doing poorly, is something that's been present in most or much of our foreign policy up to today. 
that we were quote-unquote spreading democracy in Iraq and Afghanistan at the same time that Abu Ghraib was in the papers, and that we were extraditing terror suspects to black site prisons for torture and interrogations without any semblance of due process? Sure, that tarnished our image. And more importantly, the actual problem he talks about, below the image, in which whether or not the world has any notion of what we're doing, permitting or condoning anti-democratic tactics actively erodes our values. You can't, for long, have a country that encourages and engages in terror and extrajudicial strategies abroad before they get put to use at home. And at this very same time, in the 1960s, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was going after anti-war protesters and civil rights activists in a frightening reflection of what was happening in Guatemala. It's important to note also that when Vaki says counter-terror, he's not saying counter-insurgency. Counter-terror was a counter-insurgency tactic. It meant that to combat what the government of Guatemala perceived as terror on the, on the part of the guerrillas, and we've seen that what they were doing was not anything like what we'd in good conscience call terrorism, the government terrorized its own people. And while Vaki's somewhat on the fence as to whether the U.S. at that time was really supporting counter-terror versus just letting it slide, the picture was a little bit clearer. The School of the Americas, which we might use a whole episode to talk about at some point, was a project in which the U.S. military and intelligence services provided training and support to the officer corps of almost every right-wing government in Latin America in the 20th century. And what Vaki might not have known is that the Guatemalan officers who went through the School of the Americas were absolutely trained by U.S. advisors in what we would now call enhanced interrogation techniques, that is, torture and how best to use it in a counterinsurgency situation. What Vaki might also not have known is that during the period we're covering in the aftermath, from the 1950s through the 1980s, in Guatemala, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and other authoritarian republics in South America, CIA advisors were often on site at secret state prisons, advising and participating during the torture and interrogation of dissidents. So when Vaki points ominously to the potential consequences of full participation in counter-terror, although he doesn't know it, he was actually referring to what was already happening at the time he wrote the memo. What's more, and in what might be my favorite aspect of the document, Vaki points out that none of the counter-terror was either productive or necessary, and that it directly conflicted with the U.S.'s stated goal of creating and improving Guatemalan democracy. The counter-terror was destroying any sense of the rule of law in Guatemala, and destroying the Guatemalan people's trust in any kind of authority or government. And Vaki says, rightly, that if the State Department or the U.S. government as a whole felt that the institutional structures of the Guatemalan state weren't getting the job done, the answer shouldn't be then to cast them aside, but to focus on strengthening them so that they did function as intended. That's the saddest and most poignant thing about the memo, though, that the State Department and our military attachés and the CIA never read nor acted on anything Vaki pointed out, because his goals, the goals of an honest, good-hearted diplomat, were never the objectives, the actual ones, of any of those agencies. Rather than strengthening the legitimacy of the Guatemalan state or bringing about detente between the government and the rebels, our real mission was to win an altogether more abstract game that we believed ourselves to be playing with the Soviets. While Moscow never had more than a passing interest in Guatemala and never rendered support to the rebels, we could not abide a communist beachhead so close to our southern border, even if Guatemalan communism had nothing to do with the Comintern or some international movement. Vaki said that he feared that we would stand before history unable to answer the accusation that we encouraged the Guatemalan army to do these things, and that we did nothing to stop them. And there he was tragically correct. And he was also right that our image would remain forever tarnished in the eyes of the region's sensitive, articulate youth. At the least, though, Vaki proved himself to be a different kind of diplomat, 
who represented what could and what should have been a different and better kind of policy. And we, you and I, can hope that we are and will be that kind of American, and not the other that did and would dominate the history of Guatemala. The end of the 1960s and even the first years of the 1970s were a dark time in Guatemala, almost as dark as things would get during La Violencia ten years later. But there were bright spots to be found. Guatemalan history, and really the history of many authoritarian regimes, ran at this time in cycles. Injustice, like that which existed at the end of the Adigoras regime, begat protest, both civil action in the streets and armed action, like that of the guerrillas. That unrest provoked repression, which extinguished the opposition and created a new period of injustice, which in turn begat more protest. And the wheel turned. But as ugly as the results of that turning could be, the upswing of organization and learning and teaching and discovery among the population was always beautiful. Maybe even more so because we know, looking back on it, that it won't last, and that the downswing was always only a little ways off into the future. Ricardo Faya, a Jesuit priest who worked with the opposition in Guatemala and who wrote one of the books on which will rely heavily in coming episodes, wrote, quote, There was a powerful religious resurgence stimulated by the Catholic Church that organized the indigenous peoples and motivated them to break with religious traditions that, as a whole, could no longer provide solutions to the problems they faced. Grassroots community groups emerged in villages and hamlets and leaders were formed, unquote. There's great beauty to be found in Guatemala in the 1970s. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm excited to share it with you. And with that, we're going to end the second episode of Safer Democracy. I thought, and I told you folks, that this would be a simple one, too. One episode for the coup, and one to cover the aftermath. But things haven't quite turned out that way. I thought I'd be able to breeze through the research and writing, do a quick sum up. But history has a way of expanding on you, and things ballooned as I dug down. Weeks of research turned into a massive outline, and the script as it stands now is well over 100 typewritten pages, longer than my undergraduate thesis. And although I love Dan Carlin's four-hour episodes, the feedback I've gotten is that, because of the density of the material, stopping these around an hour might be better. So what was once the one aftermath is now going to be spread out over four shows, each of the first three about an hour long and the fourth one quite a bit longer. I'll let those come out every few weeks, which will give you all something to listen to and afford me some time to get a head start on our next topic, Iran. In our next episode of The Aftermath, we'll take a look at a few of the brighter spots in Guatemalan history, at Liberation Theology, Maya Revindication, and the Jungle Collectives. For now, I'd like to thank James Dykstra for loaning me his Peace Corps bungalow the quietest place I could find to record in this particular Sierra, and Marcia Dextra, she knows why, as well as another Michigander, Blaine Dietrich, for giving me some help with the website. Safe for Democracy is written, edited, and produced by me, Jonathan Coombs. Special credit goes to Paradise and Ashes, For Every Indio Who Falls, Massacres in the Jungle, and the Truth Commission Report, which have been the backbone of this show. You can find those and all the other sources for this episode in the bibliography on the website, safefordemocracy.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and at saferdemocracy.com if you want to get it straight from the source. And if you want to help me out and help to ensure that this show keeps getting made, share it with a friend. Read it on whatever service you use. If you want to go the absolutely extra mile, I'll have a PayPal donate button on the site. That's all for now. Next time, radical Catholicism and liberation theology in Latin America. Until then, I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy.
As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.